Hi, and welcome to the Drawn Today podcast, where we encourage you to draw every day. The Drawn Today podcast is a member of the Visual Artists Podcast Network, which can be found at thevisualartistspodcastnetwork.com. In this episode, we'll be discussing branching out from commissioned freelance illustration to selling your originals in a gallery setting. We'll also tell you where you can get a beret. So on this call today, we have Mark Harchar. Hello, I'm Mark Harchar. You can find my stuff at markharchar.com. And uh, Jason Cheeseman-Meyer. Hey there, this is Jason. You can see my work at cheeseman-meyer.com. And I'm Mike Sass, and my work is at sassart.com. So today we're going to be discussing how to sell original works. So illustrators generally look for different streams of income. One of the obvious things is to create works that are not part of your commissioned illustration work to sell in the fine art market. So we have a list of things that we want to discuss that are about sort of the the blurring of the lines between being a fine artist and being an illustrator. And we like to delve a little bit into how do we sell works and how can we make this this extra stream of in- income work for us? So one of the first points was, do a lot of illustrators secretly hope to one day be gallery artists? What do you guys think? I, I think in a lot of cases it's not a secret. Um, <laughs> uh, do you guys know uh, uh, Morgan Weisling? He's, he's doing great guns as a fine art painter these days. He got his start out in illustration. Um, Certainly, uh, Donato's had his gallery shows. And how am I blanking on the guy who did all of the Asimov covers? I'll, I'll come up with it in a minute. You don't, you don't mean like Michael Leland, do you? I sure do. And, and he's been doing uh, cool things in the fine art world. Um, and, and, you know, some people do, some people don't. Uh, I, I've got a lot of friends in, in both arenas, the kind of uh, pure fine arts, if you will. And uh, and the illustration stuff, so uh, it's it's kind of interesting. There's some some different motivations going on. What do you think, Mark? When I was in art school, the illustration program was a little light, and it was more fine art. There was more of a fine art push, so it was almost expected that anyone going through the program would be a gallery painter. But the impression that the students were given was that a gallery painter painted, you know, vases of, of flowers and, you know, the, the off landscape or, you know, a portrait, and, and that's what you needed to do to, to be a gallery painter. And the idea of, of just having such pedestrian type of work really did not thrill me. So when the idea came of being an illustrator, being able to paint things that were narrative and had other, you know, subject matters. That was much more interesting to me. 
And I don't know if that thematic type of stuff necessarily translates all that well into fine art, but I think if you had an illustrator that could paint, you know, fantasy stuff or stuff that just, you know, really, really thrilled them and excited them, uh, I think they would love to be gallery painters. <laughs> I think a lot of it comes down to, like, I had this conversation one time with a guy that I used to work with, and I think some artists are about the object, and some artists are concerned about the image. So there are some illustrators out there that are perfectly happy to to do the job and, let's say, do a digital illustration and be perfectly happy with, you know, doing that for 30 years. I guess the point would be that they they would get gratification and a sense of accomplishment out of, you know, a job well done for a client or the creativity or the problem solving within the image, which is, uh, you know, a separate thing than, than the craft issues and the issues of ownership of an original. In this conversation, I, it was the first time I thought about that, and it was the first time I realized that, you know, some people think completely different than me in that regard. I've always been somebody that I view the creation of images almost like almost like collecting, you know, like uh, an idea, you know, can make you happy. But I think I get gratification from, you know, crafting something and having a physical object um, come, come to life and exist in reality. So I think when the question is, do a lot of illustrators secretly hope to one day be gallery artists, um, I think I think a lot probably do, and I think, but not everybody. There are definitely artists out there that that are satisfied with the image existing, you know, purely in the digital realm, and uh, you know, and printed on product and existing in a game or existing as part of a franchise. There is a physical manifestation even to, to that sort of digital art. So, you know, I guess that that's where the lines get blurred and it gets a little difficult. What do you guys think? Well, I, I, I agree with a lot of the stuff you said. And I think uh, if we're going to talk about uh, illustrators who go into fine art, I think there's really two different camps. There's, uh, there's the guys who find a fine art market for the paintings they were doing anyway. And then there's the guys who... Uh, stop painting whatever it was they were painting professionally as an illustrator and sort of just switch genres to one of the, the gallery painting genres. Um, and I don't, I don't see a big difference between being a, uh, a fantasy artist and uh, a fantasy illustrator and, say, one of the cowboy artists of America, which is a big thing in my neck of the woods. Um, but those guys are definitely considered artistes. Um, even though you know they're painting guys on horsebacks and and uh, Native Americans in really historically questionable outfits, and it's not <laughs> that difficult from I mean that different from from what we've got going here. Yeah, I think what we're saying is that the process is the same and probably the experience is the same. And if you like both subjects equally, then 
you know, producing, uh, you know, a fantasy book cover or a painting of cowboys, it's probably not going to be much different from the artist standpoint, even though to the viewer and the, the physical end product, you know, one might be physical and one might be digital. Um, I think you're right. I think it's, it's not a huge leap from a day-to-day standpoint and from a thought process standpoint. Thematically, though, it seems that even though a lot of these images appear very close in subject matter to an extent, you know, a, a person riding a horse in a landscape, you know, with uh, a weapon of some sort or, or some sort of action going on, uh, it's, it almost seems like every individual theme has a different view from the gallery point of view, where what I'm trying to say is, like, for example, your guys on the horsebacks and cowboys, that might be, you know, perfectly acceptable in many galleries, you know, across the Southwest, and, and you know, there are places in San Francisco, like uh, the Pence Gallery, where you have individuals painting things that, from our standpoint, are purely fantasy. Like, I remember seeing an image that was in, featured in that gallery where it was a dead chicken that was dancing. It was plucked and whatever, and it was, but it was done more like a, a trompe painting where it was, the, the chicken was stepping out of the frame. But, but you know, from a, from a standpoint of theme, that's, that's purely fantasy. You're not going to have a chicken, you know, a plucked chicken get up and walking out off of your, your painting. Um, yet you don't see very many galleries that have what you would consider modern genre fantasy type art like just just think of something like from say you know Boris Vallejo you know you you see it in calendars and you see it in magazines and all types of things but you don't typically go in galleries around the country and see that type of image and I'm not really sure who draws the line as to you know what is surrealism fantasy what is uh, fine art fantastical type of image, what is, you know, historical fiction. I'm not really sure who draws those lines, but it does seem like those lines are drawn. Yeah, the lines are, are definitely there. Uh, I, I want to back up to something that Mike said a second ago. Uh, I can't quite remember how you phrased it, something about uh, being concerned with the object or what was what was the... What the object or, or the idea. Yeah, um, well, well, not just the the image, but the the self image. I've got I've got a, a good friend who's a, a very successful illustrator, uh, and a lot of his friends are very successful gallery painters, and they he's always kind of running that poll. You know, does he want to move? You know, does he want to? head towards the gallery scene? Does he want to kind of solidify into a fantasy art scene? Uh, what does he want to do? Uh, the truth is he's never going to make as much money in either of those things as he does right now, so that slows him down a bit. But it, it's funny to listen to him talk about the, the ego end of it. It's like, you know, the so I, I hang out with the, the fantasy artists, and they're all about how fun it is and rewarding and that sort of stuff, and it's cool. But then I, I hang out with the... Uh, the gallery painters and stuff, and there's a, a status thing which which they throw at me that I've got to admit is really appealing. <laughs> it it feels good to be famous. I, I have something to say 
to that. Funny enough, I just got off the phone with a good friend of mine, and I told him we were going to do this podcast about crossover fine art illustration. And he, he touched on that exact point, is he said, he was talking to a friend who's a well-established gallery painter who does very well, and he said, a lot of, a lot of people go into the gallery fine art scene, and I think this is probably more prevalent with the modernists, thinking that we're still in an era where there are art stars, where are wildly famous artists, and what he was, his friend was saying is that era is over by and large, and that having that sort of fine art ego based on pining for those attentions is, is very misplaced, and the marketplace now really works more towards the painting as an object. Is it a nice painting? Is it going to sell? Do people like it? Is it well done? Is it beautiful? Those sorts of basic intrinsic aspects, you know, affect your success and the success of 99.9% of, of fine artists now, and the sort of pining and shooting for the stars for that, you know, ego art star having a, you know, big reputation sort of career. You know, I think people are, people don't realize that the marketplace doesn't work like that. And maybe the gallery owners would would love it if, if it worked like that. They would love to make, you know, some of their stable of artists into those stars so that they can, you know, reap the benefits of the resulting prices of their work. But by yeah. and large, that, that this isn't, you know, uh, the 1940s or the 1960s anymore. Yeah, but I think I, I don't know that I agree all the way with that because I think it's, a, it's certainly not to the extent that it once was, but you've, you've got to admit that being a cover artist on American Artist Magazine uh, helps your gallery career. Uh, and what is that if not, you know... But if the work doesn't recognition? sell, what is really the end point of that? Well, if <laughs> it will sell, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. You, you get, you've got to cover on one of those, you know, uh, high-status magazines and you are perceived as being in demand, and therefore, ta-da, you're in demand. Well, I think uh, maybe it's, it's the degree now, of art stardom we're talking about then. Well, certainly. I mean, no, there, we don't have Andy Warhols anymore, and frankly, thank God. Uh, <laughs> the last thing this world needs is more Andy Warhols. Um, no, but you do have the Richard Schmitz of the world. You do have... Um, but are these people that the general public knows about? No, but the no. collecting public knows about. I mean, I, I know, I, I, I still know a number of fine artists who who buy into the whole, you know, artist as a personality as opposed to artist as a creator. And they're not only selling their art and their images and their, you know, their objects, they're selling themselves and their personalities. And... I would have to believe that if what you say is totally true, that that wouldn't be the case. It would be more about pushing the object, pushing the images, pushing the craft, as opposed to, you know, look at me as uh, I'm an artist. This is, you know, the, the personality that I am, so buy my work. 
Well, that that salesmanship is needed because, you know, by and large, you know, I, I would think there's a crowded space out there with a lot of, you know, similar works vying for the, you know, the public's dollars. I mean, how many still lifes of various apples are out there, you know, waiting to be bought or flowers? Almost as many fairies sitting on, you know, a flower. I, I think one of the, the things that happens is there's a bit of a psychological shift when, you know, if you're doing a fantasy illustration, you might get, you know, a, a few grand for a cover, but then you walk in a gallery and you see 20 grand for a painting. And I think it's, it's that disconnect in, in value that definitely causes some, some issues in some, some questions. And the sort of art stardom aspect and the ego probably emanates from the values justifying the perceived quality. So, you know, if, if you can get $20,000 for your painting of, of cowboys and I can only get 3000 for my book cover of a dragon, you know, you're obviously a greater artist doing, you know, a greater type of work that's, you know, more appreciated and the market is appreciating it with their buying dollars. What do you guys think on the value difference and, and the price difference in the commission work versus, you know, some of these exorbitant gallery price tags? You know, uh, every time I, I, I hang out with gallery painters, they talk about how much money the straight illustrators make, and every time I hang out with illustrators, they talk about how much money the gallery painters make i think it's it it is a little bit of the grass is greener and and i do run into you know some of these guys who are the you know the jeremy lip kings of the world and that sort of stuff and they're frankly they're not loaded they they make a lot of money but they spend a lot of money to make it um yes but i think i can i think i can safely say that there are those individuals that are the fine artists out there that will command, you know, thousands of dollars, tens, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars for, you know, a painting, a portrait painting or, or you know, some such. I can't, I, I'm not sure that I've talked to any illustrators that have mentioned that type of paycheck from an illustration. You know, before we go any further in this discussion, I want to point out that this is almost irrelevant to me. <laughs> that, that um, oh, I, I just don't want it to devolve into a, a, you know, pissing contest of who deserves the money and who doesn't. Um, right. I don't, I don't think we're talking about that, though. I think we're talking about, you know, the difference in, in defining yourself as a fine artist versus an illustrator and... Mm. And what are the sort of market factors that that exist? If, if one of the market factors that exists is, you know, in this space you can get 3000 for the same picture, which can earn you 15000 in another space. Now, these are obviously some of the factors that maybe the grass is greener on the other side, but, you know, personally they're, they're intriguing. I mean, obviously, I'm intrigued if, if I could sell a painting and take, let's say, one month to do a painting that will, you know, be the equivalent of, like, you know, six months' worth of illustration work. There's obviously something there that, uh, 
that is worth looking into, at least as something to do even at the same time as your commissions. Um, okay. Now, another yeah, thing... It, it was not meant to be a, a, a pissing contest and to downplay one against the other. It was just more of a... I, I didn't. I, I I wasn't trying to say that it was intended at. I was saying that it easily slides into. Okay. Gotcha. Um, and and yeah, I, I hope it didn't seem like I was ragging on you guys because I certainly didn't mean to. Um, I'm I'm biased because I have I have done gallery work and and had shows and lost money in it because uh, you know just the gallery is fifty percent and the framing. Uh, eats things up really fast, and I've certainly made a hell of a lot more money as an illustrator than uh, I ever did, or perhaps ever would, as uh, a gallery painter. That's interesting to hear, because this is where I'm at now, looking at, you know, the possibility of pursuing a gallery career. You know, I, I can see that. I can see that if you went to a local gallery and you got, you know, not top market prices because your local gallery is not a top market area, you know, with with the time that that's going to take away from your, say, you know, core illustration career and, like, what you're saying with the uh, the framing costs and the commissions. Um, and shipping. And shipping. You're... Well, financially, it may be not worth it. So what my point is, is if I'm going to look into this, what are the... Uh, criteria, what are the markets, and what are the ways that, you know, you can make sure you have all the all the things on your side to be successful. So on our online discussion group, we were talking about certain, certain markets that are the big markets for, for big bucks in painting. And it was pointed out that a lot of the, was it Southwest in the United States? Mm-hmm. And, and various markets that are holiday destinations, like I guess your your mountain towns like Vale and your big markets are your your on the east coast and too, or your your marked as vineyard and, and the uh, the places where people go that have a lot of money that tend to be you know high dollar tourist attractions, um, you know marked as vineyard Block Island. Uh, uh, Hilton Head down in South Carolina, those types of, of venues tend to attract people who who can afford to go to those places and could afford to spend higher amounts of money on, on art in addition to the, the southwest areas that you're mentioning. I, I think we're, we're segueing nicely into, you know, the different questions we have on our itinerary here. We had what sells and where, and using galleries, the pros and cons. So we're sort of talking about that now. So the what sells and where. Now, I wanted to talk briefly about something you had mentioned, Mark, about how you don't see much Boris Vileo-type work in the galleries. And, and Jason, I believe you and Mark have the notion that there is some sort of filtration going on in the marketplace with certain subjects being allowable in, in certain galleries or with certain clientele. And I'm wondering if maybe it's just the fact that that skill set is not a common skill set, so those subjects are not going to be common subjects. There's not a whole lot of painters that you would find, you know, on every street corner gallery that 
you know, you can expect to have Boris Vallejo quality and subject matter type work, you know. So what do you guys think about the fact that maybe this work would sell more, maybe would feel more acceptable if it just existed more, if more people were doing it and it was offered through the gallery system more? Well, I, I think that personally what I've seen is that you have microcosms of artistic interest in different places. Uh, for example, in, in Pennsylvania, there is a town called New Hope, which is a it, it's a it's a minor little touristy kind of shopping area that has you know your your coffee shops and different kind of things. And but it tends to be it tends to attract more of a new age type of of individual who would you know is going to be spending money there. And when you start looking at you know, the types of books in the bookstores and the types of trinkets in the trinket shops and the, and the types of art in the, in the galleries, it tends to be more surrealism and more mystical type of themes and more, you know, fantasy-ish type of work uh, as opposed to, you know, flowers and landscapes. And, but that's the kind of person that is attracted to that particular area, so... They're selling to the person that that shows up to shop there, whereas you know, a, ten miles up the road at, at a different you know area where, where people are, are spending money on art, not a single one of those paintings may sell. So you, I think the galleries are definitely looking at the people that are shopping in these locales and definitely. Just deciding what types of artists to represent and what types of images to to be selling based on the type of clientele that they have in in their locale that's what i've been that's what i see uh, um, yeah definitely so I think that's fair, but I think it's it can also be said that certain more complex subjects like you know figurative type subjects they're just more difficult to treat in a sophisticated way or in a modest way or in a way that would allow for, let's say, the nude or figurative works to be appreciated and not repulsive to, you know, the general audience. You know, it's interesting how I've heard so many times from people saying, you know, figurative doesn't sell, yet, you know, how many people just love, you know, Bouguereau and Waterhouse and these artists does figurative not sell, or does the type of figurative work produced and sold in these galleries not sell? Because there's definitely a difference. Well, the galleries in my neck of woods, figurative certainly does sell. They they sell a lot of that, um, and they, you know, again, frequently have the. Uh, well, I actually I'm, I'm misspeaking a little bit. The the straight figurative stuff is certainly rare. Uh, but you get figurative stuff that's that's dressed up with little bits of cowboy and Indian motif, and all of a sudden that has a market. Right. And uh, and and I think uh, again, and I'm not saying you guys you're doing this, Mike. I'm saying that that some people run into of the uh, seeing the the gallery as this uh, you know conspiracy behemoth designed to keep people with true skill out. <laughs> Um, and that's definitely not what you're arguing about. 
No, I don't uh, think anyone's alluded to that. I think we're just we're under well, the understanding the gallery is a business. They're trying yeah. to make a cut off of people's nice pictures. And yeah, no one on this call has, has said that, but other people no. have said it to me today, so it's in my mind. Really? Like, yes. under what sort of All assumptions? Like, are, are if I these... say it, they will know exactly who I'm talking about. Okay, well, let me, let me <laughs> make a phrase. Are there artists out there who are perhaps disappointed in their own their own success through the gallery system that they would like to blame it on, you know, their partner in, in that endeavor, i.e. the gallery? I think that's probably quite fair to say. And, uh, and you know, a, a lot of artists, they don't want, they want the money, but they don't want it to feel like a business. So they get a little bent out of shape over the fact that a, a gallery is a business, and that's got to be, if they don't run like one, it's not going to do anybody any good. Um, I, was, I was sitting next to a pretty cool discussion between some, some rather established gallery painters and some up-and-comers and, and, and the, the up-and-comers were quizzing them about how you how you find a gallery, how do you do this, what's the contact you make. And so they, they quizzed this guy for, oh, a long time. And then they, they turned to me and said, okay, well, in the, in the illustration business, what do you do? And I said, well, every time he just said gallery, replace the word editor and just follow his advice exactly. The advice was exactly the same. You, you find your market, you target your submission, uh, it's it's all the stuff that that illustrators have been telling each other forever. It's just now towards a, a new genre, and uh, uh, your editor now runs a gallery instead of a, a whatever business you're used to working for. I think that actually lends itself to a question that I had mentioned. I don't think it made it to the itinerary, but um, you know. Then we'll have to table it till the next meeting, Mark. Oh, okay. If it's well, not. <laughs> But, it, but it's, a good, Sorry. it's a good point to bring up. Sorry. All right. I'm done. <laughs> All right. On to the next point. Okay. All right, Mark. Mark, what were you going to say? <laughs> yeah, I don't remember. Um, as, as an illustrator, the thought of – the concept of basically selling your, your art to – you know, the highest bidder there to to control whatever you're going to create. You know, as you know, as you're a, an individual who's just the the hand to someone else's themes and ideas and whatever, and you're using it for commercial purposes. So you're you're defining your work in whatever parameters are that they're giving you, and you know, and you're not able to you know totally and freely create as you would as a gallery painter, for example. You know, I've, I've heard that type of thought process go before. But if, if you really get down to the nuts and bolts of it, you, you have two options as, as a fine art gallery painter as well. And they're basically the same options that you have as an illustrator, and that is you can create whatever art that you want, whatever way you want it, and try to find somebody who – We'll pay you for it, or you can find the gallery or you know the, the agent or whatever it is that you're that you're working with. Find out what they sell and what type of images that they would like to see from you, and you can create images in that manner in that form. 
Now, both ways have their pros and cons, uh, but I don't think that those two directions are much different than the same type of choices that an illustrator needs to make when they're creating art. Is that fair to say? I think it's fair to say because, you know, looking at what illustrators do to break in, they're constantly doing portfolio samples and skill development that is very targeted. It might be so specific that it's targeted to one franchise or one company. So the end goal of that is, you know, to get a couple commissions from that company, and that piece might not be, you know, relevant to another client. So to do that kind of work and to not expect an artist to, you know, in at least some way tailor their their fine artwork towards being successful in a certain place in a certain time, that just doesn't make sense to me. What do you think, Jason? I, I, I think that's fair. Uh, I, I, I've got... It, it's kind of funny, because I've got uh, sort of the, the two ends of the quote-unquote fine art world in my, my circle of friends. I've got the, the people who are doing experimental stuff, and you know they've got gallery collectives, and they hold these shows and do installations, and they don't make a friggin' dime. Uh, and they do, you know, really cool stuff and whatever they feel like and whatever they think is important to the world around them and that sort of stuff. And then I've got the guys who are, they're, they're illustrators in the fine art genre. They do, they do genre paintings. Um, it's just that their genre happened to be the genre that the general public likes hanging on their wall. And, Right. That there's is no the sole distinction and there's no between how they work and how I work. Sorry, I I said something at the same time you were talking. That's cool. You said there's there's no demand. What I was saying is because no, I, I said there's no. I was going to say there's no demand for that same work as a printed product, let's say, or as a company's need, as, mm-hmm. you know, to to commission out as an illustration. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there there are definitely the people out there, um, and I don't want to necessarily mention any names because I tend to get in trouble with that kind of thing. Um, but I, I know that there is a he was a pretty well known uh, abstract realist illustrator who's been in Spectrum a number of times and you know, had done book covers and that type of thing and and you know very much realism, very much you know, in the vein of, you know, surrealism, fantasy, surrealism, you know, whatever that, that line is that, you know, that kind of blurs there, um, who had a relatively successful book cover career um, and decided to start selling those same types of images in the gallery scene and has started to build a pretty decent gallery career out of, from what I'm seeing, basically the same style and types of images because, you know, the the ones that I see in the most recent issue of Spectrum are still the same style, type, and genre, and, and themes as, 
you know, a few years back when he was still doing the illustrations. So I think yeah. in that particular case, this this individual found or looked or whatever, you know, his market where he can make that transition and not really have to compromise what he was creating, how he was creating it, or, you know, thematically, you know, the content of his work, yet simply found another venue for selling it. And he found another revenue stream for the same illustrations he was already doing, and more power to him. Right, if, much. if I wake up tomorrow and, and find that the work that I'm doing has a better market in the gallery than it does in where I'm selling, I'll be moving over to the gallery. I think what I see, though, with the gallery, like the thing that interests me is is the ability to have someone selling your originals for you and, and having a possible um, stream of income that requires very little massaging at the same time that you're doing your new commissions. So, you know, you could be working on your illustration, and in the background you don't know that somebody just bought a painting of yours this morning. You know, you didn't have to actually sell it. In, in mm. I, I, you know, I think that might be a bit of a mischaracterization, at least from, from the, the guys in the strata that I hang out. It is not... A, a, a passive source of income. They do a lot of self-promotion shit and, and you know, chatting up the, the gallery guys and stuff. Can you describe that further? Like, I, yeah. I'm thinking, um, okay, you take okay. your product to the gallery and yep. they hang it. Yeah, you take it. your product to the gallery and they say, um, okay, here are your 20 paintings. We will take these 15. We need 10 more that are like this painting here. We've got no interest in these. This one here that we haven't sold that you have a uh, buyer for somewhere else, uh, actually our contract lets us keep, and we want to keep it even though we haven't sold it for two years that it's been sitting here uh, in our studio. Uh, this painting that you just turned in we think would sell better if you did this change. And this change, would you mind doing that for us? Um, and this is not. Uh, this is the sort of thing that we think doesn't happen in the gallery scene, but but is a big part of life for a lot of the, the gallery painters. That sounds like a worst-case scenario to me. If it was a worst-case scenario, I'm sure he would not still be doing it. He's, it's just like us. You know, you get a, a bad client, a bad experience every once in a while, and you, you bitch about it to some friends over a beer, and then you go back to work. Mm-hmm. But what you're saying before, before this is that, uh, you know, you, you find a gallery that sells the types of things that you're doing that mm-hmm. has the pre-existing clientele. And so let's say there's a subject that there's a good fit for. Now, you know, if I'm an illustrator and I have, you know, a week in my schedule that is not filled with an illustration, I can sit down, pump out a picture. Slacker. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> pump out a picture, you know, send it off. And, you know, hopefully in the next few months, that'll be sold. So you didn't really, you know, have to go search for a new illustration contract. You have the ability to make money at the drop of a dime. You know, just pick up a paintbrush and start making something. As long as your retail side is in place and you have that relationship. So is this, is this a realistic expectation? 
this this does not sound like an accurate representation based on my personal experiences and and chatting with friends in this line of work. Um, and and you know what? I should point out that uh, there there are lots of people, and and some of them are are part of John today, who do very close to what you're you're talking about there, um, but. Uh, they're not doing it in the fifty to one hundred thousand dollar galleries. No, no, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about you know you would make the same sort of money that you would make with that week doing another illustration commission. Like, I'm not sure. It's just basically a spec illustration, right? Yes, exactly. I guess that's the thing is where there's that divergent path of are you going to target the local gallery or the gallery that's you know, the easy fit, or are you going to, you know, take this a little more seriously as a career step and, you know, develop larger, more demanding pieces that are more market-driven and that are sold through a very specific, you know, probably not local high-end gallery. So those are two different things, I guess. I think there's a few factors that are going to determine what way you're going to be able to pursue that path. And one of them is how prolific of a painter you're capable of being. Because I know that there are, and I've been in them, I've seen them, um, there, there are different types of galleries. There are galleries that will represent multitudes of artists and sell and display collections of different artists in the same genre, the same theme, or the same, you know, stylistic qualities. Like, um, I think I mentioned the, the Pence Gallery in San Francisco. You know, the, 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 if you look at their website, the majority of their artists are still-life, trump lawyish type of, of artists. And there's, but there's a plethora of them, uh, you know. But I've also been in galleries that have much fewer artists being represented, have many more works, you know, in the gallery. And then there are the galleries that, you know, have your, you are the sole artist or, you know, you're one of the very few artists and there's just a lot higher number of of paintings, you know, that represent your work in that gallery. So one thing is going to be how prolific you you are. Um, The other thing is going to be, you know, locale, how much traffic, how many people are coming through. and there's, that, there's definitely a number of factors involved in what type of fine art gallery work you can sell, just like in the illustration field. Um, you know, whether it's, you know, thematically, you, know, you paint dragons, so you're going to sell, you know, to Dungeons and & Dragons and Wizards of the Coast and whatever else. Uh, you know, focus on those areas and leave some of the other paintings that are kind of outside that genre for your spec illustrations and your one-offs commissions here and there. Um, how how prolific do you think an, an illustrator or an artist needs to be in order to be a gallery painter? From your perspectives or your from your experiences. Okay, I will say uh, the more prolific, the better. Um, People talk about, you know, scarcity and that sort of stuff, but 
I, let me put it this, I've, I've never seen anybody who only makes, say, 20 a year, 20 paintings a year really move stuff. Um, I've seen people who've started to move stuff and make a name for themselves who then, you know, start doing really super elaborate stuff. And, you know, once they've got the demand, they, they taper down and they're only doing uh, a, a small number a year. But I think when you're when you're getting going... I think you need to be just as prolific to be successful as you would as an illustrator. You know, cranking out a couple of pieces, three pieces, four pieces a month, every month. Well, do you think that that more. is? Do you think that then is a handicap for an illustrator that typically paints in a manner and style which I, I guess I think you would have to agree that, that all of us do. You know, very you know, in-depth, you know, detailed work, you know, compositionally, they're, they're complicated. You know what, man? And, and uh, they, they take uh, a lot of time. Yeah. Uh, it, Mark, do yes. you paint more complicated than Donato does? No, but what I'm comparing to... Because he, he has, you look at his, you know, output per year, and in some years he's doing the 30, 40 pieces a year, no problem. And, right. and I'm, oh, hang on. Full disclosure here. The reason that I'm pissy about this topic is because I'm angry with myself for not being more prolific than I am. <laughs> um, and and so there we go. That is why I'm I'm being wound up about this. Uh, I I have said to myself that oh well the reason that I'm only doing you know a couple a dozen a couple dozen paintings a year is because the stuff I do is so complicated and that's bullshit. I just need to organize my time better and pay more attention to where my time is going, what projects I'm wasting time on, um, how long I'm standing there holding a paintbrush but not moving, all that shit. And those are valid points. Um, But on the flip side, you also have, say, let's just, and and like I said, this is not saying one is better than the other, but you can, you have a number of individuals, say, that are plain air painters who paint, you know, cityscapes or whatever, and they can generate a piece in maybe two days. They, you know, and they go out. So you and so can I. Sorry, I'm shutting up now. Please continue. <laughs> you know what? I, think I, I, I cannot produce a painting. I think my glasses are... I need to fill this up while Mark keeps talking. <laughs> Mark, I think from my vantage point, if I want to make a point about sort of complexity, when I look at a lot of fine art stuff in galleries, I mean, we've sort of established whatever is, is a nice picture is going to sell. So now whatever is a big nice picture is going to sell more, and whatever is a big complex nice picture is probably going to sell even more. So how do you get complexity and how do you get, where do you get your compositional elements to fill a large canvas in a realistic style? So what I see in a lot of gallery work is they don't do the things that illustrators do, i.e. the compositional planning on paper with multiple sketches, tonal studies, color studies. I mean, obviously some do, but by and large, you know, when you're churning out your, you know, 40 to 50 paintings a year, and being prolific, you've got to fill those large, detailed canvases with something. 
if it's figurative, it's generally, you know, one figure lying on some fabric and some pillows. You know, a, a woman sitting on a chair with a lot of, you know, emptiness in the background. So I think you're totally right when you're saying there's a different level of complexity and planning that, you know, takes time and takes fussing. And for 99% of artists out there, isn't realistic to take those pains and expect to end up with, you know, 40 paintings a year. So I think the solution that I see the gallery painters taking is, you know, filling that large, detailed, realistic canvas with free detail. So that detail is is not composed detail. It's not detail that you've done studies for, per se. It's detail that you may have arranged nicely, but it's not detail that you have concepted from the thumbnail stage and up. So, you know, still lives are a great example of this. The object is, is as detailed as you can find, and all you got to do is find a bunch of detailed objects and start rendering. You know, I could put a, a beautiful still life together in a couple hours and, you know, start in a couple hours. But how long is it going to take you to compose a multi-figure scene in full color with costuming? You know, that's that itself is going to take as long as the painting process or longer. So, and and I, I bring this up because I have I have read a number of things on this type of topic as it pertains to the early 20th century and uh, you know fine art as opposed to you know your your classical academic uh, painters and one of from the reading and research and stuff that I've done one of the reasons that modern art and you know much simpler composed much you know less representational and realistic paintings took off is the fact that the artists that were producing them were able to produce them so much more prolifically than your academic painters of the time, you know, your Bougereaux, your your Pre-Raphaelites, and, and those type of individuals who, you know, would take weeks or months to to create, you know, the works that they were working because of the complexity that they were putting into them. And the gallery owners were seeing that, that, you know, it's a lot easier to sell volume than it is not volume. You know, if, you, if they have 100 paintings, they can sell 100 paintings, but if they only have 10, well, you know, they have to try to make that money some way, you know, maybe a more expensive painting or, or whatever, but, you know, it, it's, it's 10 paintings versus 100. So right. if you can sell 100 paintings because you have them, and you have more opportunity to price them the way you need to or to backfill if you sell half of them, you know, more quickly. It makes more financial – it made more financial sense, and, you know, this may not be universally accepted, but, um, you know, it, it made more financial sense to push the art that can be created more prolifically because they can sell more of it. Well, and the gallery takes on less risk by putting – you know, they're not putting all their eggs in one basket. They they can run with 
they can run with an artist or two that that starts to you know sell more prolifically than others and uh just having more options available to the buyers you know allows the gallery to have a greater degree of success of not just selling more but but figuring out what sells and uh making sure there is a sale period rather than zero sales like you say because if they, you know, if they, if Gallery A has a, a Mike Sass opening where there's 30 paintings that Mike Sass did this year, and they sell 20 of them, and you know during the opening and whatever, they need to know that Mike Sass can backfill those 20 paintings as quickly as possible. And if they know that it's going to take a year to backfill those, well that it might make more sense for them to have an artist who can backfill those in a month. Um, and that's why I mentioned, you know, the, the prolific. And, and not, I'm, I'm not saying that anything that I do or we do is, is anything, you know, better, more complex, you know, Donato does. By, by, way of, by way of apology for being a jerk, let me offer a... Uh, yeah, you are being quite a jerk tonight. I am. <laughs> I don't think you're being a jerk at all. Hey, uh, I think you think you're being you, a jerk. You're obviously not paying attention, Mike. Actually, I'm not. <laughs> okay, well, that explains it. Most people don't pay attention to me think I'm perfectly pleasant. Um, I, I went to art school for a year, and, and while I was there, I made a fair number of enemies of the staff and, uh, and friends of other of the staff, uh, but was privy to a pretty fun discussion where... Uh, these two teachers, both of which had sort of equally successful gallery careers, their paintings sold for about the same amount, which is roughly a new car. Um, <laughs> but the one of them who was complaining—I'm uh, exaggerating—but they were doing—they were doing well. They were doing well. Uh, but the one who was uh, leading the bitch fest was pointing out. That her stuff is all, you know, 700 layers of paint. Da, 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 da. So her paintings sell just as quickly and for just as much, but take five weeks to complete. And her colleague does his in an afternoon. And she was super pissy about it. <laughs> so um, I, I think this phenomenon we're discussing is... Uh, is pretty well documented and widespread. Well, I mean, I have I have an experience very similar to that, where one of the guys that I went to art school with, we we both had exhibited in in a show recently, and when we were in art school, this guy was just a phenomenal realist painter. He, you know, I actually bought one of his works because I just, I, you know, I really appreciated the crafts and the ability and you know his technique and everything, and. Uh, you know, he, he did really phenomenal, detailed realism work in, in school. And after he graduated and moved out into, I don't know exactly what scene he's in. I'm assuming that he's in the gallery scene because he's also teaching part-time. But his style and his work transitioned from, you know, very classical realist type of, of stuff to the last bunch of images that I saw him exhibiting basically looked like those old iPod commercials with, you know, a silhouette and some color-splotched backgrounds and some, you know, random geometric shape type of compositional elements. And he was 
he have the same price tag on those pieces that he that I've seen him have on his more complicated, realist, detailed pieces. And I'm thinking, my first, my, you know, my first thought was, what the hell are you doing? You know, you're you're wasting all your your talent and ability. But then I'm like, is he smarter than me? <laughs> he's well, he's statistically crazy. speaking, Mark. Probably. <laughs> but, he, you know, the, the, there's no way he didn't create or couldn't create one of these images in a day. You know, but he's still got the price tag on it of, of the same thing that may have taken him a week or multiple weeks. So. Well, this is funny, Mark, because all that you've said in the last couple of minutes is exactly the, uh, the itinerary we've got down here. So. <laughs> the itinerary was, since the measure of a good artist is how successful they are, i.e. selling stuff, does the need or desire to make money necessitate compromising your artistic integrity? And why spend 40 to 80 hours on a painting when you can do one and two? I, I, I'm, I, yeah. I'm struggling a bit with that myself. Just well, let, let me let me let me go back to my little anecdote about the the two teachers, and and give you the the bitching teacher's answer, which is just well, you just paint the way you paint, and if if you and I are are in the fold where what brings us satisfaction is the shit that takes weeks, then that is our cross to bear. And if you can't bear it anymore, uh, by all means, pick up a lighter cross, and, and I would be the last person in the world to look down on you for it and, and go do quicker, easier stuff. That is totally cool. Um, as, it, as it happens, I, I, do, you know, I do a lot of pieces in my professional life that I can bang out in two hours. Um, and I do those to finance the time for my two-week paintings and my three-week paintings um, because that's what brings me to satisfaction. And, and I don't think being in a, a, a gallery setting rather than an illustration setting would change that that much for me. Yeah, I agree with, with Jason in the sense that uh I mean, you need money, you need to pay your bills, and if somebody's going to give you $5,000 for a day's work, then, you know, you'd be stupid not to take it. And at the same time, you, as an artist, are, are not doing this for money. It's not like, you know, a normal job. It's, it's more of a calling and it's more of a passion. And you have a, a long-term goal that you want to, you know, hopefully produce some great things in your life and and get as good as is your your skills and your your time allows you to so in the other sense you want to pursue things completely irrelevant of of the financial outcome so i think the answer is both to that and uh but if if you were to have these certain abilities and and shirk them just for the sake of, well, it's selling, it's easy, and maybe filling filling part of that workmanlike part of your artistic professionalism with a bit of 
art's stardom ego, I think that would probably be a bad evolution, even if that evolution allowed you to make $5,000 in a day. Unless you're using that $5,000 a day to finance the work that you really want to be doing. I think the problem only comes when you let the, the really profitable stuff eat up your ability to do other things. Well, that's what I said. I said you do both, but if you're doing yeah. the one, then that's probably not so good. And if you're doing the other, i.e. just painting for yourself and in, in complexities and things that are unrewarded through the marketplace, then good luck, I guess. <laughs> that actually, for those who want, who want to go back and listen to last uh, episode, that kind of touches on the uh, same thing that you have individuals who have other full-time jobs, which enabled them to uh, finance the art creation that yeah, they want to do. Yeah, and I don't see a big difference between my illustration jobs that finance the art, be it fine or illustration that I want to do, and a... Uh, ooh, and... Uh, I totally lost my train of thought there because I dropped something. <laughs> and so... Whether my day job is, uh, I dropped my phone and nearly landed in my drink, okay? Um, <laughs> whether my day job is... That's alcohol abuse. <laughs> and phone abuse, all in one. Um, whether my day job is, uh, is art-related or not, uh, it, it finances the stuff that I really want to be doing with my life, and that makes it okay. All right, well, we're here. Starting to wrap this up. So let's say you've got a bit of a foothold in the, in the gallery scene or, you know, you're, uh, you're painting and you're showing and selling on your own even. How do you enhance your reputation, raise your prices, and shoot for further success? So can we talk about some strategies to keep in mind, not when you're just breaking in, but as you're working to, uh, to make sure that, your works are selling for more every year. And Galleries, I, sorry. Go sorry. ahead. I was done. Galleries love awards, um, and and newspapers love awards. So if you've got a show going up, and the reporter can say, "Award-winning artist who last year took this and this," uh, then more people show up to your show, and the more people show up to your show, the more foot traffic you got, the more demand you've got, the better it is for you. So I think I I hate hate entering art contests, but I, I do think it's frequently a good thing to do. Um, I also think a friendly relationship with the press hurts no one. And, uh, and I think, to a certain extent, being prolific and friendly and traveling in the right circles uh, will, will bring you success. Can you describe what you, when you said about being friendly with the press? Like, how can you utilize the press in that regard? Well, there's, there are fine arts communities um, of collectors and painters and, and gallery goers and, and schools and that sort of thing, and being known among them is a, a good way to drum up demand and interest. So are you talking basically the... I mean, all of us, we've gone to conventions, we've, you know, we hang out in the illustration circles, you know, we, 
you get to know all the other you know people. Yep, I'm saying now you've got to do the same thing in the fine art scene. Understood. Gotcha. Except they have these things called openings with alcohol and food. Don't oh, they? and and Jesus, the hors d'oeuvres at those things are fucking fabulous. You got to become friends with some artists, if nothing, just to go to the openings and and get the the hors d'oeuvres and the the free hurricanes and red wine. But where the hell do you get a beret? Like, come on, they don't have you know berets what? in Walmart, do they? They do. They do. That's where I got mine. Um, <laughs> You've got a beret. <laughs> I do. My kids don't let me wear it. They say it looks silly. So where, whereabouts in Walmart do you find the berets? Is that, Actually, is that by the uh, Disney-themed comforter from, section? It was from Target. It was a black beret. I bought it for a Halloween costume years ago, but I do truck it out every once in a while. Um, yeah, oddly enough, my kids have no problem with me wearing a skirt, uh, but uh, wearing the beret, they're like, no, 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 no. We cannot let you out of the house with that. Wow, that's too much information. <laughs> Technically, it's a kilt, but uh, I, I have to tell you, don't you? Yeah, but there was a, a beautiful uh, little exchange when my older daughter was like four or five, and she's sitting in ballet class and introducing herself to kids. and like, hi, my name's do That's my dad over there. Sometimes he wears a skirt, and that's okay. <laughs> Ouch. I it was awesome. So, Mark, can you think of any other things that you can do working in the fine art circles to enhance your reputation to raise your prices? One thing that I've been told, and I've seen this in other realms and other areas, and it's, it's a pricing thing where you can have ten items lined up in a row, and if one item is priced higher than the rest of them, even if it's very similar, people are going to believe that it's of greater value. If you have your paintings selling at a certain price point, having one painting that maybe is larger or more detailed or something that slightly sets it apart from the others, even though it's all in the same vein, but putting a price point on it that is higher than the rest does two things. It shows people that this is something special and it could be worth more than what the other pieces are worth. And if you can only have this special piece, you know, your, you know, its value is higher and, and you're more special as a person. Um, and then, it also sets for you a price point of, I've now sold pieces at this value, so any additional pieces in the future are only going to appreciate because things appreciate, so the next piece could be higher. So having, having one, one special piece that is more expensive, I believe, could be of help to, to raise your prices and raise your uh, your uh, perceived reputation. It's really interesting to have a, a gallery owner help you price stuff um, to see what they perceive as being valuable about your work. And in my experience, at least, it is not what I perceive as being valuable at my work. The stuff that I thought should have been the top of the line, they did not. And it was um, offered a lot of insight 
into perceived values. Um, so I think if you're, uh, you know, if you found a gallery that you like, you found a gallery manager slash owner slash whatever that you trust, ask them. You're like, look, I'm I'm trying to set up prices. Uh, I know what I'm used to getting. I don't know what your your gallery is used to charging. Uh, would you be interested in, in kind of going through and, and working on this price list with me? And I'm pretty confident they'll say yes because they want to get as much money as they can out of your work just like you do. There was also another point on an interview with Dan DeSantos where he had mentioned that a, a good strategy is to raise your prices every year just a little tiny bit so that there is no incentive for the buyer to hold off on purchasing a painting because Ooh, great idea. they know it's only going to get more expensive next year and the year after. So instead of trying to say, oh, things are on sale this week or, you know, give somebody a discount, be a little more slow and steady with the increases. And that, I think, communicates to the buyer that, you know, you're not desperate, that, you know, your success is, is slow and steady and assured and that they are not, um, it's not in their best interest to wait. And that supports the fact that, uh, you know, they're probably thinking of investment value when they buy a painting and thinking that it's going to be more next year and the year after and the year after. In 10 years from now, you know, it might be 50% or 100% more that uh, motivates them from the investment standpoint as well. So that was a great uh, Danda Santos quote that uh, I thought was worth reiterating. I agree. That's a good one. I hadn't heard that. I've been told to never discount your work simply because it, it, it gives the perception that the value that you're asking to begin with is not what it's actually worth. I, I think I've got to agree with that. I think it depends on if your strategy is long-term or short-term. If if you want to move something today and you've got a one-time customer and you're never going to see this person again, you know, you might want to throw out all the stops. But, you know, if, if, uh, if you want somebody to be a collector and to buy something from you multiple times and to recommend you to their friends and whatnot, I think, you know, being a, being a solid bet, being an investment, and, and having prices that only go in one direction, i.e. up, is, is probably the smart way to, to deal with that side of the issue. All right, guys, so why don't we wrap this up? I think All that was right. a, a good discussion. Um, yeah, Mark? My, my, my beer's empty anyway, so. <laughs> Jason, I think you were heavily drinking some scotch the whole time? Um, no, I switched to rum halfway through. Okay. <laughs> You have, like, a cordless headset that allows you to go to your mini bar? Oh, God, no. You think I'm an amateur? I brought it to me. <laughs> you have before a mini we bar call. your desk. Um, <laughs> I, okay, I've got a, a, a co-worker that I do very long conference calls with. I've learned to bring all supplies to the computer before I start the conference call. Mm. Um, parting words from me. Um, all this advice that we've been giving is, is great and true to the best of our knowledge. The one thing that we didn't mention often enough is just to rock. The most important part about your success is making art that fucking rocks. And if your art doesn't rock yet, keep working at it. It will eventually. What Jason said. Yeah. <laughs>
I'm not an expert in the very least in the fine art in the gallery scene. This is just a new topic for me that I'm starting to do research in. So these conversations are more about just getting the ball rolling for me, getting thoughts out in the air, getting questions dug up, getting some answers. So, you know, I'm not able to provide answers on this podcast per se, but we're talking about possibly having some interviews in the future with people that are more experts in this field, uh, more firmly established fine artists and and gallery owners perhaps even. So this initial podcast, I think we were just bantering a little bit about, you know, the crossover as an illustrator to a fine artist and uh, breaking the ice in this in this realm. So, Mark, yeah. and why don't one you... topic that we kind of skipped that I, I think we'll hit in future podcasts is sort of the crossover, natural crossover area, which is convention gallery shows. Um, mm. We actually that was on our a, list here, but we never got to that. Right, and that's a, that's I think is a significantly different beast. I think we need to tackle it in a different podcast. Mm-hmm. Well, the reason why we sort of skipped over it is that it didn't it didn't flow directly with with the talk on on external galleries and fine art scene. And there has been a lot of talk on other podcasts on how and what to sell at conventions. So it wasn't important to to make sure it fit within this discussion. Yeah. So, Mark, why don't you go ahead and, and wrap this up with your website? Well, my website is markharchar.com, and you can find my work there. And Jason? Uh, my website is cheeseman-meyer.com, and uh, I post a lot of stuff to my live journal, where I am Jason Cheeseman Meyer. I mean, sorry, not my live journal anymore, but my Facebook. All right, and uh, my name is Mike Sass at sassart.com and sassart.blogspot.com. And I'd like to inv- uh, invite anybody listening to go on Facebook and make sure you hit the like button on the Drawn Today podcast Facebook page. This has been episode 30 of the Drawn Today podcast. Come back in a couple weeks for a new episode, where many of the members of the Drawn Today blog will be attending the Illustration Masterclass. There will be interviews and discussion on what goes on at the IMC. The music for today's podcast has been provided by Collide. Information on Collide can be found at collide.net. Take care and remember to draw every day.